there's something that's sandwiched between two other things. So you, you really you really can't take on just part of it without dealing with all of it. So you gotta you gotta look at all of this. And what you're gonna see here is uh, if you've ever heard of the word chiasm, it's C H I A S T I S L chiasm. And it's just a fancy way of, of, of it's a way that the Old Testament authors and the New Testament authors in certain places expressed what they were trying to communicate. Um, and all it is, it's, it's A, B, C, C, B, A. A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay? And it's, it's very intentional. They're doing that. That's why I bring it up. Otherwise, I, I just leave it. But when you're looking at this passage, it's in a chiastic structure. Okay? So if you look, A is Jesus in the crowd. B is Jesus' family. C, accusation of the scribes against Jesus. And then now here's the CBX. That's ABC. Now you can see a repetition of what we just saw. Okay. C, response to the scribes. B, family reappears. And A, Jesus in the crowd. Okay. Or another way to do it, like me and Dan Eisen like it, the Baptist three-pointer. Number one, Jesus is deranged. Number two, Jesus is possessed. Number three, Jesus is true family. Okay. That's what you're seeing in this passage. Fifteen verses. Jesus is deranged. That's the claim. Jesus is possessed. That's the next claim. And then Jesus flips all of that and says, no, who is my true family? What is my true family? Okay. So that's what we're looking at. So number one, Jesus is accused of being deranged by his own family nonetheless. So it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it looked like it was rough for Jesus, but now it's even rougher in a sense. Okay. So verse 20, look at this. And he came home. Now, whose house is that? That's probably Peter's. Okay. He's back in Capernaum. What's great about this is that remember when Jesus calls Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. What's, what does he do right after that? You know what he does? He goes back to that house and he eats with them. So he calls the disciple, he calls four disciples, and he goes to the house and eats with them. When he calls Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, what does he do right after that? He goes and he eats with him. Here you're having, what did he do last week? What did we see him do last week? He calls the 12 disciples. What does he do right after that? He goes to the house, and he wants to eat with the 12 disciples. However, look what happens, okay? He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So now, what, what, what Mark's doing here is he's amplifying the situation. He's showing that, you know, over here, the first two stages, the first two times Christ called his disciples, things, things were crowded and tense, but he was at least able to eat a little bit. With his guys, right? Well, now it's it's become so um, so crowded, so tense. Things are are, are are so amplified that he's not even able to eat a meal. Okay. Now, what happens though is in verse twenty one, his own people come. Now, in the NASB it says his own people. When his own people heard, so this would be something like his kinsmen or his family. And we see that down here in verse uh, thirty. Two. No, verse 31, where it says that his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. Okay? We know that Mary has had certain insight about who Christ is already. Right? At the time that Christ was born, she had some insight. The angels came and told her some things about Christ. And then as Christ grows, remember there are things that happens in his life that says that they pondered these things, they stored these things up, and they try to figure out, man, this there's something... There's something unique about what's going on in this particular person named Jesus Christ. At this point, Jesus Nazareth. Right? So here you're asking yourself, okay, so when Mary goes, is, is Mary at this point? I mean, what happened to Mary? 
Um, and, and what's happening likely is that, you know, this is a very patriarchal society. Jesus has brothers. Jesus' brothers are responsible because it's pretty much uh, acknowledged by everybody that Joseph is, Joseph is dead by now. Otherwise, he would be there also because he would be the leader of the house. Joseph being dead, though, it now falls on the brothers. So essentially, it's almost, it's not necessarily Mary who is running this ring. It's some way, it's one of the brothers, which is really neat because who is Jesus' brother? Brothers, James, the man who wrote James, the letter of James, and also Jude, the one who wrote the letter of Jude. So, so it's probably Mary, James, and Jude, among other people who are in this mix. And we're going to see all of them at, at some point later on converted. But they're there, and they're thinking, what about Jesus? Well, they heard something. Look at verse 21. It says that they heard something. When his own people heard this. Now, there's two ways you can look at this, okay? What did they hear? Did they hear he was starving, that he couldn't eat? Maybe, right? I read some commentators. They were like, you know, that's... They, actually, some of them said that's what they heard. Mom was... Mom was, was, was Worried about her 30-year-old son, who at this point, you know, in that culture, when you're 14, you're already married. You know, you're already having kids at 14. So when you're 30, it's not like in our culture, we're 30 years old. Um, I'm 37 now. My mom still is worried about whether I'm eating and stuff like that. You know, I don't know if it was like that in, in this culture, but what we can say is this, okay? They heard something. Perhaps it was that things are so crowded that he can't eat. I don't, I don't really buy that. What, I, what we know they are hearing is what everyone else is hearing. So what is everyone else hearing about Jesus by this time? We already saw that when he was by the sea, everybody's coming from 150 miles away on foot to see where he is, to see what he's doing. Demon-possessed people who have illnesses, diseases, people who are Pharisees, scribes. It's not just people who want to see him or are in favor of everybody. Everybody has by now heard about Jesus. So there's no doubt that they have heard about Jesus and they're concerned. You know, it's, and, and going back to, uh, a, a, you know, my own mother, uh, bless her soul, she, she's a wonderful Calvinist. I can say that. She has been. She's come a long ways. She's an amazing woman. Um, here's the thing, though, okay? I, I still remember if, if I do something, you know, missionary, if I go out and I preach somewhere, or when we lived in El Paso, we'd go to Juarez. And uh, my mom, my grandpa, everybody would be so concerned. I'm sure our, our Guthrie in the back, he's probably heard some of this. You know, they, they go across the seas to, to do mission work. And your family's very concerned. You know, they're like, wait a minute. Wait, are you sure you should do this? You could die. You know, and you're like, well, yeah, okay. That's okay. When you're called to something, we all know that you can do it. Okay, so Christ here is on this mission. And Christ is in a very dangerous situation. Okay, Christ is in a situation that's much dangerous, even probably more dangerous than someone going to war as with the gospel. Why? Because in this day, he, in their eyes, has blasphemed God. He's doing things that the high authorities are after him for. The demons are after him. I mean, everybody, he has a target on his back. And so it's common that his family is going to hear about this, and they're going to say what? you got to stop doing this. Okay, not only for your own safety, but now you're bringing reproach upon our entire family. Because if you remember the passage in John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. John chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. It says this. Now this is about a man who was blind from birth. And he's in a situation where Jesus heals him. And he goes around telling everyone, hey, now I can see you. Which is what you would do after you're, you're, you're born blind and you're healed, right? Now people are recognizing, wait a minute, you weren't blind? How, what happened to your eyesight? And he's saying, well, this guy came, he did this, and he healed me. And then when that happens, there's controversy. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him, 
because this guy said Jesus is a prophet, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received the sight. So the guy who was blind, they called his parents in. And they questioned them, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now you're thinking, okay, well, that's, maybe that's true, right? They don't know. But then the very next verse tells us, verse 22, his parents said this because why? They were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They're not afraid of death, the parents. They're afraid of being put out of the synagogue. Why? Because the synagogue was everything. That's why it was such a big deal for these disciples to be around Jesus and to be claiming the name of Christ and to be associated with Christ. That in itself would, would be a scandalous thing. That's why at the end of Christ's life, you see all the disciples flee whenever Christ is crucified. Because now they're like, oh man, I'm in trouble. Because we just spent the last three years with this guy. They know we're, we're, we're with him. And so now they're going to come after us. So they know they're in a, in, in a hot mess. The, the family, by virtue of the fact that Christ, Christ is the oldest brother. Think about it. He's the firstborn. So he is, in a sense, the head of that household. He's responsible, in a sense. So when they come... They're saying, Jesus, you got to stop this, not only for your sake, but for our sake. you got to stop what you're doing. And that's why I think the brothers probably dragged Mary along, um, just, just because they, they, they could. What's Mary going to do, right? So uh, it's not to say, now here's the thing, it's not to say she didn't have her doubts. We'll see this in a minute. But here's what we have next. Okay, Not only do they come and say, hey, you got to stop this because we're concerned. We've heard about these things. You know, you have emergent drive to ministry. You're not properly eating and drinking. You're poking fun at the Pharisees. You're, you're, uh, you're already being threatened with destruction. They're saying they're going to destroy you. you got to stop. But also, hey, this is disgraceful. You're not, you're not doing what you should do. And everybody knows this. But look what they tell them. Look what they say in verse 21. They were saying, at the very end of verse 21, they were saying he has lost his senses. And you know what the literal phrase is, or a better translation of that word would, would be something like, he has gone berserk. He's out of his mind. He's insane. Now think of that, right? So it's one thing, and we usually, we usually look at the Pharisees, and we say, oh, the Pharisees didn't believe, the Sadducees, I mean, but they were the religious authority, they were stuck up, they were, you know, they were high and mighty and thought they were better than everybody. But what do you say about the family, right? How do you, and what you're saying here is this, okay? It is only, it is sheer grace alone that opens your eyes to the truth of Christ. That is, there, you know, so often you'll hear unbelievers say, oh, if only I saw a miracle, if only this happened, then I would believe. That is not true at all. And we see that because not only is it not true for the family, but number two, Christ is going to be, uh, accused of being possessed. In verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub. Okay? Now here's the thing about these scribes. You notice it says from Jerusalem. In other places we saw scribes, but we have not seen scribes from Jerusalem yet. The scribes from Jerusalem, this is an official delegation sent by probably the Sanhedrin to go and check out what Jesus is doing, to look at his miracles, to investigate what's going on. Because in those days, what would happen is that if there was an apostate or false teacher in a certain area, then the Sanhedrin would send a delegate down there like scribes, and the scribes could on the spot declare a certain city to be a seduced city. 
And what that means is that that city has been taken over by an apostate teacher or a false teacher. And so likely they're going down there to check out if this city, Capernaum, because that's where he's doing most of his work, has become a seduced city. And so they're there. It's an official delegation. Now, look what happens, though. The second part of 22. When they call him, uh, when they say he's possessed by Beelzebul, okay? Beelzebul is made up of two words. Um, Y'all remember in the Old Testament the word Baal or Baal? Baal or Baal, depending on how people say it differently. Um, so this it was a Canaanite storm god. Okay, so that's the first part of this word. The second part of this word means house. So it's something like the house of the Canaanite storm god. But by the time Jesus is on the scene in the culture, uh, Beelzebul has come to take on a meaning, a meaning that just basically means Satan. And you'll see that because the word Satan is used synonymously um, in 22 and 23. So it's, they say he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Verse 23, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, saying, how can Satan cast out Satan? So what are they saying? They're accusing Christ of two things here. Number one, that he's possessed by Beelzebul. Number two, that the work he's doing is a work that's done by demons. Okay, so that's, how, that's what I meant by saying, you know, just because you see a miracle does not mean anything. They're looking at these miracles. They're not, nobody's denying that Christ is doing miracles. And in fact, later on in the history of the church, you'll see, like in the, year, uh, the, the second century down the road, you'll see guys, pagans, who are raising, rising up. And they are accusing Jesus of being a magic worker, a worker of black magic. They're not, nobody's ever said, hey, Christ didn't do these miracles, except Thomas Jefferson. You know, everybody else was recognizing, no, he's doing miracles. And he is, he is, there's no doubt about it, but it's about who are these, who is, who's um, the power that's ascribed to these miracles? Where does it come from? Where does that power come from? Okay? Now, they say, well, it's Beelzebub. And number two, it's the ruler of the demons. Okay? Now, what does Christ do? Look what Christ does. He, he, he flips the script, and he says in verse 23, it says he called them to himself, which is a... I'm telling you, every time we look at a story of Christ, there is always something where he intentionally makes a scene that's kind of tense into something that is very tense and like a powder. It's like a powder keg and then it explodes because Christ says a few things. I'm not saying it's bad. It's a good thing because he's wanting to, to teach and to proclaim things through this. But think about it. They could have said that and he could have just said, yeah, whatever, guys, you know, he's gone his way or, or vice versa. No, he says it says he calls them to himself. And then he tells them something. What does he tell them? So he says, listen, how can Satan cast out Satan? Great question. Right? And what's he saying there implicitly? He's saying that when I go and I loosen the guy's mouth so that it can talk. When the guy who can't walk, I go and I strengthen his legs. When the guy who can't see, I come up and I, I, I open his eyes so we can see. When a guy who has a withered hand, we go on and on, right? When a guy who's demon-possessed. Maybe even more obvious. He's demon-possessed. He comes up. I, I cast out this demon. Why in the world would Satan do any of that? That makes no sense at all. It's a great question. Um, and so that's the first way he responds. He says, how, how can cast, Satan cast out Satan? And in verse um, 24, he explains it a little more. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. He's not going to last. And so why would Satan do that? What's the point? Satan wouldn't do that. Satan's not going to go cast out Satan. 
Demons aren't going to cast out demons. So the next part, though, look what he says, verse 27. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And so you see in 27, you're seeing certain words ascribed to certain people. All right, so for instance, who's the strong man here in verse 27? Look what he says. But no one can enter the strong man's house. Who's the strong man at Satan? Satan is the strong man here. And by virtue of the fall, the entire universe is under a curse. Owned by Satan, I guess you could say. Right? Satan is the one who's operating death, disease, sin, chaos, mayhem, murder, all these things, rape, abortion, all these things. These things are because of the fall by virtue of the fact that evil is rampant in the world now. And this is Satan's domain. Okay? So that's the strong man. Satan. Well, what does Christ say? Christ is talking about, in verse 27, next he talks about the property of the strong man. So the property of the strong man specifically would be people. These people in Ephesians 2, it talks about, let me read this, Ephesians 2. If you're ever in doubt about whether or not unbelievers are, are enslaved to, to the deeds of Satan, just like we all once were. Look what Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which... You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's a reference of the devil. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There's a spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. What spirit? The spirit of the devil. Verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Notice he says flesh and the mind. So the flesh and the mind enslaved by the spirit working in them, the spirit of the devil. So what Christ is doing, he's coming along and he's saying, listen, these people belong to Satan. They are his property. He has claimed them. They're his. But when Christ comes, look what he says. He says, essentially, what's he saying? Someone comes in and binds that strong man. Who's the one who comes in and binds the strong man? Christ. We see that all the way back in the, in the temptation of the wilderness when the devil comes and he's tempting Christ in three different ways. And Christ overcomes that temptation. And then he, right away he's going out, he's casting out demons. And we're seeing that what he's doing here is he is the one who binds the strong man. And then look what he says. And then he will plunder his house. So the Pharisees come and they say, listen, or scribes, they say, you are doing this through Satan. Satan is giving you the power to do this. And Christ is saying, no, on the, on the other hand, no, it's, it's, it's on the contrary. It's rather me who is destroying the works of the devil. And we've seen that as a theme in Mark. That is what Christ goes around and, and does. He is destroying the works of the devil. He's coming in and he's invading and he's conquering. Beelzebul, he's on the offensive. And this is why even in our culture, in Christian, Christian culture, you talk about application, man, look, you know, there has been for decades, it seems, like Christianity is always on the defensive. You know, it's like, hey, let's just let's just retreat, let's bunker down, let's just wait for the storm to be over because we're going to get out of here, and that's that. And that is nowhere to be found in the scripture. In the scriptures, it's the offensive. Why? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Christ is not on the Christ isn't like sitting back. Christ is going to invade and conquer. Spiritually speaking, and again, going back to this idea of the church militant that we brought up before. We are the church militant, which means what? We are to be active and engaged in tearing down the strongholds of Satan wherever we find them. And specifically and especially in the lives of people around us. Right? So you have unbelievers in your family. Those unbelievers are enslaved to the devil. So how do we do that? We, we can't coerce with the sword. Of course not. Right? 
We go in with the gospel because it's by faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. By faith, people come in, right? Or excuse me, by hearing, they come in through faith. And so Christ has given us these spiritual weapons, and he also gives us other means as well. You know, um, the fact by virtue of the fact that you're at work, uh, uh, even politics, um, and the idea that you can't talk about politics in the pulpit, that's, that's out the window in this church. Because there is no way that you cannot preach through the Bible without touching politics. I'm sorry. Okay, so we are definitely, there are times when you have to touch this stuff, and we are called to touch this stuff as ambassadors. But what you're seeing is that in every realm of life, the Spirit of God, the Word of God needs to be moving and invading and conquering the demonic strongholds that are out there. The Reformers talked about four spheres. Okay, four spheres in every one of our lives that we as God's people should be about the Lord's business. Number one is our families. Number two is our work, our vocation, whatever that is. Uh, number three is in the church. And number four is the government of the state. Every one of us in here, am I wrong? You cannot get away from any of those four. You can't. And so in every one of those spheres, we should be on the offensive about getting the gospel out in our families and, and, and um, in, in politics, like everything. You know, everything is all-encompassing. It's not just me and my private face, me, you know, us and our, with our Bibles on Sundays, and then when we go out, we're, we're, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's not that. Why? Because everything about Christianity, biblically speaking, is about going and tearing down the strongholds of the enemy and seeing Christ being victorious and conquering in our own lives and across the world. And I know I've said this before, but this is exactly why we are here at Lebanon, Texas, preaching the gospel. Because somebody was not passive and defensive about the gospel. Somebody says, you know what, I'm going to go to those heathens in Texas. And if you've ever read uh, about the Comanches in Texas, man, they were heathens. They were crazy. Somebody said, you know what, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to preach the gospel. These, these, these Comanches that would drag women out of huts and do everything and children across coal. And I mean... This is the idea here, right? People who are going up, we talked about last week, guys going into southern Russia where the land of the man-eaters. And we are called to do the same thing. And here's one last thing on this before we move to the third point. You want to see a great demonstration of this? Every abortion clinic in Texas last week, more or less, was killing babies. Next week... There will not be a single abortion clinic in Texas. It's already started, you know, but there, there are no more abortion clinics in Texas that are doing, that are killing babies. That is a good practical observation just in real time of seeing the, the space of Satan has been invaded, has been conquered, destroyed, and now we need to go by those places and make them into churches. That's how we do this, right? And now we have the, strong, the demonic areas coming into New Mexico, and so we, we said, I want to. But the, that's the idea, okay? That's the idea. So that's what you see Christ doing. He's invading and conquering the spaces of Beelzebub, of the, of, of the demons. Okay? Now, here's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit part. Okay, verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, you see in verse 30, Verse 30 is what is, is the, uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That phrase that they are saying. They are saying he has an unclean spirit. They are attributing the works of Christ to, the, to, to, to be the work of Satan. 
That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I would actually argue, and there's two opinions on this. Some people argue, and I, I kind of hold to this opinion myself, although it, I, you know, I'm willing to hear other debates on this. Um, but I don't know if you can actually, because this is a special situation where they are directly attributing the work of Jesus Christ as they're seeing it to the work of the devil. Does that make sense? So I don't know if you can actually commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit anymore. Uh, and again, that's debatable. I, I, I am open to discuss that. I really am. Um, however, what you can definitely say for a fact is that, again, it's not saying some kind of weird phrase. All it is is, and not all it is in a light way, but, but what it is is it's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ's ministry to the work of Satan. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Um, and you know what? In a sense, you can look at it from this perspective. Isn't it true? And this is why it's debatable what I just said um, as far as whether it was just for that time. Because you could also say that any time you go to somebody and you tell them or they read in the scriptures about what Christ has done and they deny that. And they say, you know what? I don't believe that that happened. I don't think that that was Christ. I think something else was going on there. Perhaps, right, if they hold that mindset and they die in their sin, well, that is an eternal consequence for holding that belief. Um, there were guys in the early church, a guy named Kel uh, Kelsus and others, who actually were, were saying that Jesus was just a magician. In fact, the, the official records of the Sanhedrin in AD 32 says this about Jesus. So this is like the official minutes. It says, Jesus practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. He practiced sorcery and enticed people to apostasy. So that would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's, and that's, that's what it is. So the last thing we're looking at here, though, is 31 through 35. Jesus' family, his true family. Okay? Um, his mother and brothers, they arrive, they stand outside. Now look at the contrast. So in verse 32, you see a crowd was sitting around him, but the family's outside. So Mark is showing us something there. Okay? Christ is, or Mark is demonstrating that his people are with him. Remember last week we saw what, what three things the disciples were called to do. Number one was to be with him. They're there. They're with Christ. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Jesus' family, they're not there. They're not with him. They're outside. Okay, so Mark is telling us something. They're standing outside. They also, look what they do next. Um, verse 31, it says, they stood outside and they sent word to him and called him. And so the crowd is sitting around Christ and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So that in itself is already distracting and interrupting what Christ is teaching. We've seen demons do that, have we not? Christ is in the middle of teaching, and demons come in, and demons try to interrupt what Christ is doing. Now, I'm not saying that his family are demon-possessed or they're demons or anything like that, but they are doing the same type of work that the demons themselves did, which is namely to stop or interrupt the work of Jesus Christ that he's doing. To take his attention off or his focus off of what actually the substance of what, what matters. And so they come in, and then verse 33, of course, Christ says, answering them, he said, Who are my mother? And my brothers, which is great. I always like pointing to this with your Roman Catholic friends who think that Mary is a perpetual sinless person. Perpetually sinless. Never sinned. Sinless. Well, right here, I mean, clearly, Christ is saying something about what's going on. They don't, there is something that's off here. Um, and not only that, but he's saying that if you're in Christ, you, in a sense, Occupy that place of relationship with Christ that would be like a, a mother type of relationship. Mother, son, family, or father, son type of relationship. We'll talk about this in a minute. Okay? But verse 33, he answered them. He says, who are my mother 
answers in verse 35. Okay, he looks around. He says, or verse 34, Behold my mother and my brothers. Okay, talking about those around him. And in 35, he says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay? So if you do the will of God, you are... Now, he's, of course, using this metaphorically. Okay, so you're not... We know that. We're not really his mother, father, brother, sister, sister. But we are constituted as being part of Israel, his people. Remember last week we saw how Christ is recreating, he's calling Israel the 12 tribe, the 12 disciples. Okay, so when, we're come, when we come into that, we're grafted into this family. And you see this throughout the scriptures. It says this in 1 Timothy 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. The younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So even ideally in the church, that's the kind of situation we have, is it not? You know, you come in and every one of us have families. Um, you know, every one of us has family members who are not here today in our church. Every one of us. And are they our family? Well, yeah, biologically they're our families. I'm, you know, Christ is not saying to cut everyone off. I'm not saying, no one's saying to cut everyone off. But it's to say, it is true, though. Once you come into the church, that the relationship you have with your unbelieving family is never going to be as rich and as deep as those who are actually believers, even though uh, biologically they're not your family. And that could be not just here, but I remember even like getting onto an airplane. It's so refreshing when you're sitting next to somebody and they're actually Christian. Um, I mean, it's... it's, it's it, <laughs> I don't know, and that's not just in an airplane, but really any kind of experience where you're kind of expecting something, um, you know, you're just out in the world, and all of a sudden you meet a brother, maybe at work, and then all of a sudden you're like, really, you're a believer, wow, how great is that? And there's this, there's this kinship already, that's just ingrained. That's what it goes back to the, that idea of the universal church, the Catholic church. That's what, it, that's what it's talking about, that the church is not just this church. It's wherever faithful believers are, whoever they are, they're part of this family. Now, we know we have this local family, and we have a bigger family. Um, I want to read this out of 1 Corinthians 12, though, as we wrap up. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27. For even as the body is one, and yet as many members, talking our physical body, our physical body, one body, we have you know, fingers and ears and eyes and all that. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So it doesn't matter your, your, your race, your bank account, your culture, the language you speak, where you work, all these things. Listen, God calls people out of all of those things, and he comes, brings us together, and we're one, we're one body. And then he says in verse 14, for the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Right? If you're like, hey, I'm not the guy who collects the tithes, so I'm not part of the body. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all, right? If, if I'm not the guy who, you know, gets the trash, or whatever it is, right? You're, you're looking at ostensible things. You know, the reality is this. Every single one of the, every person here, we are in the camp. We're in the camp. If you go back and you look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament, when you're talking about in the camp, every single person here is with value and essential and has a place. 
and is important and all those things. And I don't mean to get all lovey done, right? But that is a fact. You are, you know, again, yeah, it's like a Hallmark card. You're important. It's like a Joe Osteen sermon, right? You're important. But that's a fact. There is truth in this, okay? Because you are very important regardless of what the Lord has called you to do in this church. See that? Even if it's just praying for people and no one ever knows it. That's huge. Okay? Um, every single person. You know, it's a letdown when somebody doesn't show up. Not, I know things come up. But you know what it is? Because you're like, man, I love seeing so-and-so. I love being around so-and-so, so-and-so. And then, you know, for whatever reason, they can't come. It is a letdown. There's that idea, right? And, and, and it's weird. But we have this common faith. We have this common belief, especially in our culture, that's so polarized now. Where it's like, hey, I know at least when I come here, I can speak a certain language. And you guys know what I'm saying. I can say things that you're not going to chop my head off for. Or stone me, or burn my car down. If I say, "Hey, abortion is murder," or it's wrong for a man to marry a, a man, or it's wrong to, to fornicate, right? I know I can say that, and if you don't like it, you're not being biblical. And if you are biblical, if you do love the Lord, you're going to say, "Amen." I believe that too. It's refreshing in our culture. All right, so that's that's the attitude that that, that, uh, that you're seeing. Paul says here, every single person. Look what it says: If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. And then He goes on and on, talking about how they all have different gifts. They all have this. And then if they said, "I have no need of you," or again, the head to the feet. If the head said to the feet, "I have no need of you," what kind of body would that be? Right. So if, if we said, hey, Mike, hey, hey, Pete, I don't need you anymore. Why, how, how's my head going to go anymore? How's my hands going to do anything if I can't put it right? Same thing. So it's not like, hey, so-and-so, you're not needed. Everybody needs it. You all have different functions. You have different gifts. You have different places, personalities, all these things, different backgrounds and experiences. That's why we've always loved David and Carolyn from day one. We need people with their experience to keep us alive. Us younger guys. Right? Especially Dan Zeiss. All right. I'm just kidding. All right. Verse 20. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, etc., etc. You know, if you lose your toe, you can't even walk, supposedly. Is that right? If you lose your big toe, supposedly you can't walk. You know, in the old days, they chop your toes off and your thumbs off because you could not function with that your toes and your thumbs. You're like, man, I wouldn't even pay attention to my thumb ever. But you cannot operate without your toe or your thumb. And that's what Christ is doing here. When he's saying, listen, it's not my brother, it's not my sister biologically, my, my biological mother. These are, this, yeah, they're my family. I get it. And Christ says to honor your family. Honor them. Pray for them and everything, right? But ultimately, when we're talking about not only eternity, but even in this life, it's a whole nother thing when you have a spiritual family who has the same worldview, the same mindset of Christ that you do. That's, that's huge. And that's why you would say, and I can say absolutely, 100%, that my family um, who are unbelievers, I'm not that close to. We talk. We get along. We, okay, yeah, but I know that I can't go but maybe an inch deep before all of a sudden there's fireworks. Right? That's, that's the family, biologically. But you come here around other brothers and sisters, man, and you can get deeper. And even when we disagree, it's, it, it's very healthy, I think, in some way. Right? Sharpening each other, sharpening iron. We're all sanctified, being sanctified. We all have things we need to learn from and learn. 
There's a lot of good things about the spiritual body. So that's all Christ is pointing to. It's those who are committed to Christ, those who are committed to Christ's people, those who are committed to Christ's person, who say, I want to live for Christ. I'm not good at it. I'm sloppy at it. I make mistakes all the time. But he is my, he is my Savior and my Lord. And, and you're saying he's my Savior and Lord too. And so let's go. Let's go. So ultimately it comes down to this. Like, uh, like C.S. Lewis said, who is Jesus? Right? It really is. It's a great way to put it. Who is Jesus? Is he a liar? Is he out of his mind? Is he a lunatic? Was he possessed? Or is he who he says he is? Is he Lord? Is he the Christ who went to the cross and suffered on behalf of his people, was raised from the dead three days later, and now comes and promises us that anyone who comes to him, he will not be cast out. That he came not for the righteous, he came for those who are sinners, beating their chest, miserable with their sin. Go to him. That's who we came for, for people who are sinners. All right, let's pray. Our King, we praise you that we have a Christ who is so good to us. And, and, and Lord, what a, what a blessing it is to, even though we're not Christ's biological family, although we're not biologically from the seed of Abraham, we praise you, oh God. We praise you that we have been counted worthy in Christ to be part of the family, to be able to call Christ our elder brother, be able to call you our Father. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to, to be hungry, to do the will of Christ, to do the will of God. We know that, that so, many, so many times we, we, we struggle with this and we're cold and, and complacent. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to overcome that complacency and that, that dullness that creeps into our hearts, oh God. That you would give us the zeal that Christ had. A zeal not without knowledge, but with knowledge, oh God. Knowledge in, in accordance with your scriptures. And that you would give us a thirst, O oh Lord, to see Christ proclaimed and Christ exalted in this land. In every arena, oh God, in our families, at work, in the state, in the government, in the church, in, in, in every place that we go. Lord, help us to be, um, to be on the offensive. Help us to be about your business. Lord, thank you for taking care of us, even in our weaknesses. We know that that's when we're strong. That's when we have the, the power uh, because your, your, your strength and, and your power is perfected in weakness. And we praise you for that. Thank you, oh God. Help us to be weak enough. Help us to be um, non-self-reliant. Help us to be dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh.